If you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 18 and reading to 5, verse 5. As we start this passage, I just want to tell you how this came about. Uh, my friend George Robertson, who pastors Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, we have become uh, good friends and uh, prayer partners, but every Sunday morning, one of us starts off the conversation by text, how can I pray for you? And so I beat George to the punch uh, Easter morning and said, how can I pray for you this morning? And he texts back, pray that those who grieve might have defiant hope. And I text that to Bill and Diane, who were going through grief at that time and still are, I imagine. And Bill said, I like that. I, I like that idea of defiant hope because hope is something we have to fight for. Hope is not something that comes easy in our life. Hope is something that stands out against grief and despair and stands its ground against the opposition of hopelessness. When we talk about defiant hope, we talk about the hope that we read in Psalm 42. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, yet will I praise Him, my Savior and my God. In Psalm 42, hope fights back. Uh, the, the psalmist takes himself by the collar and says, Listen to me, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Why are you so despairing? Hope in God. He questions himself, he exhorts himself, he fights for his hope in God. And so I began to think about defiant hope in the Scriptures, and I began to think about Abraham, and then I thought about Joshua, and then I thought about Jeremiah, and I thought about uh, Isaiah, and I thought about Habakkuk, and I thought about Malachi, and I thought about Peter, and, and then I realized what it says in Romans 15, verse 4, all of these things were written that we might, through encouragement of the Scriptures, have endurance and hope. The Scriptures were written that we might have hope. And that's what we're doing today. We're reading that passage. Let's listen to the Word of God, starting with verse 18 in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for those who believe in him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings that we may know suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to all of us. The reading of God's Word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, through the preaching of your word and we're being reminded of the promises and the power of God that we might have in this world a a defiant hope to the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen. Vice President Bush represented the United States in the funeral at the funeral of Soviet leader Brezhnev. Uh, George Bush was deeply moved by the silent protests of Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless until the coffin was closed. And then just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of courage and hope, a gesture that surely will rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross. At the same, Jesus might have mercy on her husband that his life might not end. She had what we might call a defiant hope even against the political powers of Russia and the orders of her husband, who was an atheist. What is defiant hope? Let's look at it under three headings. Let's look at what is hope and how is it related to faith, and hope and how it's produced and how it's strengthened, and then hope and how and why it does not disappoint us. What is hope and how is it related to faith? Well, you could say faith and hope are kind of like twins. Not identical twins, but twins. Fraternal twins, you know, uh, fraternal twins have the same father and the mother born at the same time, but they're different. They're, they're not identical. You know, identical twins, you send them to school and you dress them alike and you call them Dan and Don or, you know, uh, you know, their name's Rhyme or something like that. You, you know how it goes. And they play tricks on everybody. But some twins are not alike, yet they have the same parents. And that's the way hope and faith are. They are born of the same parent, but have different characteristics. I like what John Piper says in his uh, commentary on, on this passage and about hope and faith. He says, what is the relationship between assurance of faith and assurance of hope? Is there any difference? I would suggest that faith is the larger idea and hope is a necessary part of biblical faith. Hope is that part of faith that focuses on the future. In biblical terms, when faith is directed to the future, you call it hope. But faith can focus on the past and the present too, so faith is the larger term. You can see this in Hebrews 11, the closest thing we have to a definition of faith in all the New Testament. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
But faith is more than that. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the Word of God. Faith can look back to creation as well as forwards. So faith is the larger idea. It includes hope, but it's more than hope. You might put it this way. Faith is our confidence in the Word of God and whatever the Word of God has re- whenever the Word of God has reference to the future. And so all that Piper is saying is that faith looks backwards at what God has done, believing that Christ has lived and died for us. Faith is believing God in the present. But when faith looks forward to the promises of God and the coming of Christ, then it's called hope. We know that Abraham was justified by faith. He was justified, made right with God, not by the law, not by works, not by circumcision, but he was made right with God by faith. But that faith gave evidence to us and to him in that he expressed hope. He expressed real hope in God. When you think about hope, you you have to think about what Abraham hoped in. If you look at your passage again, verse 18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. Some of your translations, a wooden translation, maybe more like the ESV and the New American Standard, says he hoped against hope. He hoped when it was hopeless. He hoped when there was no evidence or reason to hope. He fought for that hope. And the reason he fought for that hope is because God had made him a promise. And that promise was not yet fulfilled, so his faith was looking forward and it was hopeful. It it wasn't just that, you know, when we become husband and wife, there there comes a time when we decide that we want to start a family or have a family. And that we say, well, I I hope we can have children and I hope we can have healthy children and I, I hope we can have, you know, a boy, a girl, and then a boy and a girl again at the same time. You know, whatever you hope for. But this was not Abraham and Sarah just saying we want to start a family. That God had given them a promise several times. God had said in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham to leave, he said, I'm going to make you a nation. And from your seed it will bless all other nations. That's in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 15, he, he reminds him that he's going to bless him, that Hagar and Ishmael aren't going to be the blessing of the promise of that, fulfillment of that promise, but he's going to have a seed that was born to Sarah. And then when they come back and he says, you're going to have a child next year, Sarah laughs. And God continually, repeatedly, over and over again, comes back and he, he, he builds their hope up. He helps them fight discouragement and despair with this constant repetition of the promises of God. There's an interesting story about how you fight for hope. Isaac Watts, in his uh, attempt to bring hope and encouragement to the nation, uh, during a difficult political time, turned Psalm 90 into that hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, Our Hope for Years to Come. And little did he know that about 30 years later, during the Revolutionary War or the War for Independence, that that hymn would be used in a different way to fight an enemy. In 1978, Reverend Charles Caldwell, 
he was a Presbyterian minister. They called him the fighting chaplain. And because he was willing to take up arms against the government, his wife had been killed by the Redcoats, and so he was particularly zealous. One time when the battle was raging, it looked like that our forces were losing, they retreated back towards his church, Reverend Caldwell's church. And they had run out of wadding for their muskets. And so without the wadding, you couldn't have a, a, the bullet go out. And so what the fighting chaplain did, he ran into the church and got hymn books, and he said, give them watts, fellow, give them watts. Give them the 90th Psalm. And so they stuffed their muskets with the hymns of God's Word, and they fought and won a great victory. That's what I mean by fighting for hope, for defiant hope. You know, hope doesn't come easy. Sometimes it's easier to look around and say, man, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Politically, economically, you know, every kind of way, and get so hopeless, and we have to fight back with the Word of God saying God is sovereign. Hope is certain. Hope knows and trusts. It believes, persuaded fully, it says. When we use hope, we use hope with uncertainty. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope I can get into the fields. I hope I have a good crop. I hope my pictures are good this year. I, I hope that, that, you know, the test results are good. But that's uncertainty. There's no, you know, that's, that's just optimism. Hope is certain, unshakable, that God has said and done something. We build our hope on the revealed promises of God and God who cannot lie has said it and we believe it. And so hope is certain, fully persuaded. And hope is living. Hope is living. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been born again to a living hope. So not only is faith the part of the new birth, but that faith that gives rise from the new birth gives rise to a living hope. A hope that's not dead. You know, we, we so many times we hear this phrase around the hospital, where there's life, there's hope. Well, that might be true. But this is true more so. Where there's hope, there's life. That hope is some way energetic and life-affirming and life-producing. We see that in Viktor Frankl's uh, works after the Nazis' prison camps were destroyed and discovered. Uh, Frankl had spent uh, time in three or four different concentration camps, and he had endured terrible conditions and seen even worse. Because he was a doctor, a psychiatrist, he probably had it a little bit better than other people. But he understood how we were born for a living hope. He saw this one person that uh, had a dream. It was a vivid dream. And the dream had a date connected to it, May the 13th, 1945. And he believed that May the 13th of 1945, the war was going to be over. And after that dream, he had energy, and he served other people, and he lived a life of, of hope, even in the midst of those concentration camps. But as it got closer to May the 13th, he saw that his hope wasn't going to be realized. 
started running a fever the day before, got sick, and then, re- and then suddenly, soon thereafter, died. That hope had literally kept him alive. That's what hope does in our life. It keeps our spiritual life vibrant and believing. Let's look at that's what hope is, and that's how it's related to faith. But what is hope, how is it produced, and how is it strengthened by suffering? Hope is produced by suffering, and hope helps us endure the suffering that produces it. You go, that's kind of contrary. But anyway, hope is produced by suffering. I rejoice in my suffering because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. And the way that hope is formed in our life is through the trials and tribulations that we face. And the very way we persevere through those trials we face is the hope that God gives us through the trials that we've endured in the past. When you read this passage, you have to be amazed that it said that Abraham never wavered. You know, when I read it, I go, well, he might not have given in to unbelief, but it seemed like he wavered. But his commentary said it, when the chips were down, he really believed. He never went into unbelief. He might have, he might have tiptoed there into doubt, but never went to unbelief. But his faith and hope were tested. He had obstacles. He had trials and tribulations. It was the test of time. In Genesis 12, Abraham was 75. Now, I'm 66 and I feel old. I can't imagine being 75 and saying, okay, pick up and go to a place where I've not told you. And by the way, I'm going to give you descendants. And he, and he goes. The next time he hears from God... It's 11 years. And that's when he and Sarah decide that we would believe that God is going to give us a child, but we believe not through you, Sarah, but through me and Hagar, your maidservant. But time has a way of testing your hope, doesn't it? I remember Ralph Davis teaching at Lake Forest Ranch. I remember Jonna being there. I don't remember what year. She probably has good notes from it, I'm sure. But I remember that Ralph Davis says, the way we read the Bible is we read the Bible as Genesis 12 happened Monday, and Genesis 13 happened Tuesday, and Genesis 14 happened Wednesday, and Genesis 15 happened. And it doesn't happen like that. That Genesis 12... To Genesis 17, where Isaac is born, is 25 years. So how do you persevere through that? God has promised you something. God has said that He desires all to be saved, and you're praying for somebody that you know, you hope, with a biblical hope that they'll be saved. And do you, How do you persevere? How do you persevere like Ralph Davis, I mean like uh, Doug Kelly said, for 50 years praying that somebody would be converted because of the hope that you have in the mercy of God. But not only do you have the trial of time, you have the trial of weakness. That Abraham, it says, looked at his body and he saw it was as good as dead. 
Now you could read that, and I'm not going to say exactly what it probably means, but Abraham understood, you know, the birds and the bees. Sometimes we're chronological snobs. We think, okay, they don't really understand fertility and infertility in the Bible and things like that. And so, no, they understood it. That's the reason it was so much trouble for them. They understood it that 75 to 90-year-old people normally didn't have children. Kind of be amazing if that happened. He considered Sarah's womb was dead, and he was a little kinder to himself, and he was as good as dead. A little male chauvinism there. You see, he wasn't saying, I can do it. Let's keep trying, I can do it. His focus was on, I cannot do it. But I have absolute confidence in the power of God. That God can do it. That God can give me a child. That God can raise the dead. That that God can... Uh, give me eternal life. That God can do what He says He does. Not because we can do it, but because God can do it. We are impotent people, but God is omnipotent. There's nothing our God cannot do. God strengthens the faith. Did you see that? Which means that faith had weakened. It hadn't disappeared, but it weakened. And God comes in different ways to assure him. He gives a promise in 12, and then later he comes, and, and, and Abraham complains, I, I haven't had a child yet. It's been several years. Make, let Eliezer be my heir. And God says, no, it's going to be your own child. And then he, then he goes into Hagar as his maidservant, as his t- concubine, and he says, maybe Ishmael will. God goes, no, it not only will it be your child, it will be Sarah's child. And then God comes back to him again several years later in the three visitors under the oak of Mamre, and they have a conversation, and God says, this time next year you'll have a child and Sarah laugh, remember? But you see God coming back time and time and time again to give His people hope. And they get hope because of this glory of, this hope that they want to see the glory of God revealed in their lives. Abraham was not only concerned about his self, but he was concerned about the glory of God. The same time that those three visitors came to talk about hope, as the angels were leaving, the angel of the Lord said, Should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? And I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham does what he starts praying. God, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10... And part of his argument was this, God, why should the people around here look at you and say, God brought them out here to destroy them? He was concerned about the glory of God. And that gave him hope. And that hope glorified God. There is a interesting... Uh, story about a hymn that we don't sing a very very much if I can find it here in all my different notes but anyway it's a a Luther pastor named Gerhardt Gerhardt 
He was a pastor that wrote hymns uh, probably as much or more so than Luther did. And he wrote a hymn because he was so discouraged. Here it is. He was so discouraged during the Thirty Year War that he had to leave his church. And when he left his church, uh, he had to be on the run. His wife finally broke down and cried. And during that time of crying, he reminded her of the Scripture. He reminded her of God's promise of provision and keeping. And then after storing up her hope and faith, he went out in the garden alone to pray, and he too broke down in tears. Soon thereafter, Gerhardt wrote this hymn that the church has used for years since then. Give to the winds I fears, and hope be not dismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head, though waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears away. Wait thou his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. Gerhardt was saying to his wife and to himself, it's the word of God, it's his promises that we lean on. Running out of time. Let's look at quickly, if you give me just a few minutes, I can cover this quickly. Look at the last point that we have. Hope does not disappoint. Have people disappointed you? People promised you and didn't do it. Have you ordered stuff, you know, off the Internet and it, you know, disappointed you? Sarah ordered a bird bath. It looked so great and stuff, and it came out with this plastic little flimsy thing. Better than the water slide she ordered and didn't come. She got taken on that one. But anyway... But our hope won't disappoint us. Why won't hope disappoint us? Well, did you see the last verse that we read? And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Hope does not disappoint us because God has given to us the Holy Spirit that pours out into our lives generously, abundantly, freely, the grace of God, and He convinces us in the midst of those trials and tribulations, He loves us. And He will do anything. The trials and tribulations do not mean that God is not loving towards His people. This is what Christian hope looks like. It doesn't ignore fear, anxiety, and doubt. It confronts them. It holds steady. It clings to peace in the midst of chaos. Through life's many treacherous storms, be it pandemics, political divisions, social unrest, or personal struggle, Christian hope is buoyed by something greater that has happened and something greater that is going to happen. Our hope is built on Jesus. What has happened is He has come and He has become incarnate. And he has lived a righteous life and died an atoning death and raised a victorious life. And he's coming again in glory. You see, our hope doesn't disappoint us because our hope is in a purpose. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hope. I thank you that you pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts to remind us how much you love us, to remind us the promises that you have given us. May we have defiant hope in the midst of a hopeless world, 
May we give people the hope we have. May we give them Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.